and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, uh, let's see. I'm thankful I'm not communicating only through beeps and boops, otherwise this podcast would be very hard to do. That's true. It would be a very difficult podcast if you could only say yes and no. Unfortunately for us, this podcast is also not an illusion, which is simply being projected out of your speakers at the moment. It really is a real thing. And that means this week we are going to be tackling the menagerie. So Star Trek's, or the original Star Trek's, one and only two-parter. But we are not doing it alone. We are joined by Paul. Say hello, Paul. Hi. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I'm very happy to hear it. Ready to get stuck into the menagerie with the rest of us? I am, I am. Fantastic, great. Well, um, as we always do in the podcast, we uh, we like to give our guests the opportunity to tell us a little bit about their history with the show. So um, how did you come to Star Trek and, and, and how long have you been sort of watching the show? Well, uh, just I remember it being on TV as a child, the TNG era in the 90s. Uh, I only have one specific memory of an actual episode, though. Uh, Justice, you know, the one where Wesley goes down to the planet, falls on Ooh, the grass yes. and gets sentenced <laughs> to death. <laughs> Um and then I caught random episodes and then the JJ films obviously and then 2017 to like 2019 I just did a big whole franchise watch and I'm just still watching all the new shows now as well. Fantastic! Have you have you burned your way through all of the kind of 20th century Star Trek now? Um, I've, yeah, I've watched everything. <laughs> oh, <all> the <laughs> then make all that mercy upon your soul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I feel your pain and share your situation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, Kev, would you care to give us our episode summary? All right. The Menagerie starts with uh, the Enterprise arriving at Starbase 11, responding to a summons from a certain, what is his name, Com- Commodore Mendez. But it turns out Mendez not summoned them. He thought they were, uh, there's basically two messages going in the opposite directions. And those messages are orchestrated by Spock, who is trying to reunite with his previous captain, Christopher Pike. That name sounds familiar. Um, <laughs> Spock and Pike... Uh, well, Spock has a scheme to get Pike off the off the starbase. He takes Pike uh, away, trying to feign Captain Kirk's voice and sort of take over through a sort of heist way, get Pike aboard the Enterprise, both Kirk and Mendes following in a shuttle. When they catch up to Spock, they court-martial him, asking about his actions, and to respond, Spock plays the original pilot to Star Trek, The Cage, which uh, featured Christopher Pike and other characters that we will get into. In the events of The Cage, um, Pike and his crew wind up on a planet run by the Talosians, who use illusions projected into minds in order to control people. It is turns out that they have captured one human from a crashed spaceship, Vina, and with Vina, they are trying to use Pike as the Adam to her Eve, to put it in their terms. Uh, Pike rebels against this. The crew comes to rescue him, including his number one and Spock and all of that. Uh, After a few bluffs and schemes and stuff, they escape, and the Talosians also thus decide to let them go since if they're going to be so difficult they might not be great prisoners 
Vina, however, was disfigured from the crash and it was also years ago and misses being, for lack of a better phrase, young and hot. And so she's allowed to stay to the Talosians and stay in the little fantasy world. As we cut back to the present, uh, turns out Mendez was never there the whole time. He was from the Talosians. And this is all a scheme so Spock could get Pike back to the Talosians so they can make his life more bearable as he could live in the illusion world as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, I think um, let's get sort of into sort of general impressions and and what we think of it. So, um, Kev, uh, how did you find this one? Oh, yeah, I think it's like honestly fantastic. I had I think we were talking a little bit off mic just to feel each other out beforehand. And we all came sort of in a bit of agreement there that none of us had like high expectations for it. JG and Paul, you were saying that you don't remember it quite so well. And I've of course never seen it as is the premise of the podcast. So, but like the idea of just the structure where it feels, even if it's not technically what it is, it feels very clip showy in nature, which is always a stink when it comes to TV. It's just very unusual. You don't really know how the two halves will blend. And also this is the unused pilot. Why didn't they use it? Well, there must be a good reason. And yet you watch the episode and it all works very well. Uh, I think the original, The Cage as filmed, uh, and we'll get into why I think it was such a good idea for them to use the cage footage, but it's it's a great episode on its own terms. And the framing device, I think, is very strong. I think it gives you a lot of good Spock and Kirk and even a little McCoy material that I think, yeah, it's what we've come to expect and like from the show already. So yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, I think it stands up sort of fairly well. I, I again, sort of, sort of talking off mic, but I, I, I think it's probably been a good thirty years since I see this. I'm distressed to report, and uh, I can't really, honestly, remember much about it sort of prior to this rewatch. And so my expectations were not sky high, and yet I kind of agree. It's it's really, it's really interesting. I think. Given that it's reframing existing footage, it's done as well as we could possibly hope for. And given that they didn't have Jeffrey Hunter available to reprise uh, his role as Captain Pike, the idea that they've got this kind of, you know, disfigured person sitting in a a space wheelchair is is as effective as it could possibly be. Um, Everything about it just sort of works uh, my, my own feeling is that the first episode is a little stronger than the second simply because it's relying on uh the the sort of recycled footage a little bit less but generally speaking i i think this is i think this is a really remarkably strong episode and and it's one of the ones that we really get to some kind of insight into what it means for spock to be spock rather than just you know, the person that's, you know, providing scientific answers or, you know, being terribly logical or having a having a slightly pithy put down. Um, you know, we get a real insight into his character and what, what things like loyalty and friendship and commitment mean to him. And that's that's kind of really fascinating as well, especially since he's the only character that kind of travels over from the original pilot to the, the new series. Uh, yeah, I, I was really impressed by this. Um, yeah, going back to what you were saying there about uh, the Spock and his loyalty, that's kind of the big thing I got from the first part was both Kirk and Bones having that conversation and even Kirk and Mendez having a conversation about, no, Spock would never do this. He's totally, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, that he's totally moral and he's totally, his own logic won't let him do this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, that whole conversation is really, it, it, it's one of those what times where you, you know, the, the kind of the cliches of Star Trek really break down because we're used to this kind of antagonistic relationship between Spock and McCoy. But it's McCoy who's really basically defending Spock there. It's like it, he keeps saying it's impossible for him to have done this. It, it's just not possible. And that, like again, we're used to the friendship between Kirk and Spock, and that's kind of you know unassailable. But it's 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 great to see McCoy sort of playing into that angle as well. And I think you do, uh, I think uh, Shatner actually does play it well. You get the sense of betrayal it comes across well when it is revealed that no Spock did actually do all this. He did kidnap, like he did change the recording tapes. It's incredibly sweet. It's incredibly sweet that they refer to them as tapes as well. Yeah. I, know that, I, know, I, know, I know that that's just that's just a historical facet, and that's fine. But I just I kind of love the fact that they refer to them as tapes. Oh, and yeah. the way Spock fakes Kirk's voice is through floppy disks. That is also just <laughs> so yeah, that, funny. Yeah, I was just going to say that, like, just the scene in the kind of I suppose communications bay. It just. That was, like you said, unintentionally funny due to time or whatever. But it's like, but I did like the way that any time he wanted to do anything, he had to take the time to take out the cartridge, put in the other cartridge, <laughs> and do that like three times. <laughs> it's it's a very that's a sort of the thing though. It's like silly to think of computers working that way now. Now that we know how computers work. Uh, mm. As opposed to the lay person in 1967 or 66 or whenever, mm. but I it's such a visually dynamic scene to like mm. see Spock very quickly switching out those discs to get the desired effect. It I mean it just makes Spock look competent at the yeah. at just doing all of those actions and realizing he had to do them in sequence. I think yeah it's it's a very I think clever bit of direction. I think that's what good art is is even if it dates itself in that way as long as it's creating a desired effect, it's very interesting to watch. I don't know. That's just my thought about that. I like really like that scene, even though it was obviously not how computers work. Yeah. I, I very much agree, but also it's, it is it is much more dynamic than if somebody yes. was, you know, fighting to try and get to a mouse or try fighting to try and get to a keyboard to run a program. Like, like there's just, there's just more inherent drama in that and it works much more effectively. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. I think, going back to sort of Spock's loyalty and characterization here, I think I'm really struck by like, I mean, we've talked about this, this before, the sort of evolution of Spock over these first dozen or so episodes and how he's, Nimoy has gotten sort of more control over the character, playing it more emotionless to sort of lean into the Vulcan side, while also finding these little like contradictions and stuff to play into where it feels more intentional now at this point where he's playing into contradictions than not. But in the pilot, he's definitely, I mean, he's shouting in the pilot. He is like, he is uh, a little more emotional. I think just from the natural fact of it's the first episode they shot, they don't really have a handle on what a Vulcan is yet. And I don't know. I just, I'm sure we're going to invoke strange new world a lot on this episode. I can already feel it <laughs> as the yeah. first time I'm going to invoke it is I, I was struck by how Ethan Peck's performance on that show seems to be much more pilot Spock than original series Spock, which fits really. I mean, that works. That's exactly what it's going for. So credit to Well, Pat. there is there 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 is an important point to make here, which is that when it came to the pilot, 
Uh, and this is kind of alluded to in the second episode of uh, The Menagerie, but it's not really explicit. Um, in the original pilot, um, Spock isn't emotionless at all. That's not a characteristic of, of, of Vulcans. It's number one that's meant to be emotionless. Right. And there's a line when they're in the, in the, in, in the, in, in the prison cell on the planet where um, one of the characters said, oh, you know, you'd have more luck if you try to, you know, uh, you know, if you try to reproduce with a computer or something. And that's that's kind of alluding to the fact that it, it's number one as the character who's had all this, who's meant to be emotionless, had all their emotions sort of uh, under control. That's yeah. not who Spock was originally. And when Star Trek moved to an actual production series rather than just a pilot, that emotionless uh, aspect was then sort of ported onto Spock's character. Um, so that's that's kind of where that comes from. I thought that line was very funny as well, given like Magellan Barrett actually did become the computer. <laughs> <laughs> it, there, there is a strange irony to it, right? I guess to go back to the episode proper, uh, I just, yeah, a lot of the Spock stuff in here is really good. And I mean, we're talking about the betrayal Kirk feels when he realizes Spock is there. And I think Shatner does a good job carrying that betrayal through these court martial scenes. You really get like not a lot from Shatner this episode, but of course we always have to talk about Shatner's performance. I feel like that's just every episode of this podcast. We're going to bring up Shatner. I love how subdued he is in these courtroom scenes and just like trying to figure out Spock, like trying to get to the truth and it's understated work. There's no big screaming monologues about how could I be betrayed like this? Or what are you doing Spock? What is the meaning of this? But instead it's just, he's wary and cautious and, hurt but he also wants to see the truth played out and i think that is something that's very interesting for the character i could be wrong as well but um i think that most of shatner in this episode is basically reaction shots isn't it yeah yeah over the two part i mean obviously in the part one he has the couple of scenes with spock and uh, and bones and uh, mendez but like part two is a lot of it's just him looking at the TV. <laughs> <laughs> the Star Trek about where they watch Star Trek. Yes, very meta for for nineteen sixty six. But no, you're right. I mean, that's that is largely what um, Shatner's reduced to, uh, basically just watching Star Trek, and he does it well. And and yeah, like Kev, you used the word subdued, and I think that's exactly the right word. But I think it's one of the times that we get to see kind of the intelligence of Kirk ticking away behind the scenes. And again, I think a lot of that comes from Shatner's performance, even although, you know, he has a sense of betrayal, even although he votes guilty in the, the you know, the sort of fictional court-martial, he has a desire to get to the truth that outweighs basically everything else, including, you know, his friendship with Spock, including what's happening to the ship, the death penalty, the general order, like all this stuff, like more than anything else, that's what Kirk wants to get to. He wants to get to the truth. And I think that underplaying by Shatner kind of really helps to reinforce that aspect of the character. It's 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 an unusual way for Kirk to be played, but it, it's, it's definitely effective. Uh, and then I think once we start talking about the cage, uh, we're going to probably get stuck in that a lot. So I think while we're still on this framing device, I really like the McCoy scenes in part one. I think him, his interplay with Kirk talking about how like Vulcans can't lie. Like he's usually the one opposed to Spock in these philosophical arguments, but he still respects him deeply. And 
I find it funny that he's like pretty much coming to Spock's defense here. Like, well, he can't possibly do this. And then being equally sort of confused and betrayed when Spock, when he realizes something is very off with what Spock is doing. Yeah. Um, and that scene with Kirk, Kirk reminds him that Spock is half human. Is that the first time in the series that that's uh, no. revealed? No. I think it's come up a couple it's, times. It's before. not the first time, but it, I, I think it might be the. It's certainly one of the first times that it's used as an actual character beat rather than True. something which is, uh, you know, simply a fact of his existence. Mm. Okay. That's a good point. Yes. Yeah, it's. I think a lot of things are being used for the second or third time here. That the Vulcan nerve pinch as well. Um, I think it's. It, it sort of speaks to how at this point in production, because this is, I believe, one of the later produced episodes of the first season, just because they were running, they needed to create more uh, episodes because they were running out of scripts, um, as well as reading. And yeah, it just makes sense that they'd have a bigger handle on the character now. They sort of know what Spock's deal is more. So you have these sort of recurring things popping up again. Yeah, I think this was episode 15 and 16, if I recall correctly. And yeah, we've we've had enough time that Spock's character is kind of established and we know who he is. So, um, you know, something like this betrayal isn't, or alleged betrayal, isn't something which, uh, you know, you could simply be passed off as, oh, well, you know, we don't know the character that well. Well, you know, like he's well established within the thing, uh, within the run of the episodes at this point. So it... it it carries more of an impact because we've we've had that uh, that period of time spent with him, and the other so the, just purely in terms of production, it is worth mentioning the other reason that um, that this was kind of necessary. It was money. Uh, they were overspending left, right, and center of this, right. and 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 badly miscalculated just how expensive the show was going to be. Yeah. Like, yeah, we've got this really expensive pilot that we spent a buttload of money on, so. Um, maybe we could do something with that. And, and, you know, kind of that's, that was one way of just being able to, to get things a little bit more under control as well. Yeah. Because right. then the, the framing device is basically three rooms, like Mendez's office, that communication room, the like already standing set of the bridge and the conference room where the whole, the, the trial or court martial. Yeah, sorry. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's probably deep enough to, do on its own that way, relatively. I mean, it's it was so much of a rush job that they even got like the director of of court martials episode produced right before this. I'm reading, and the, they just had the director. All right, stay on set for another five days and just grab these sets left over. <laughs> I mean, there's some original stuff, of course. The hospital set. There's the mat, the beautiful mat thing that opens the episode. Yeah. Uh, definitely, some was spent, but not a lot <laughs> and is you can tell the rush job was there and yet it doesn't feel janky for lack of a better term uh because of yeah. i think all the framing device stuff it's kind of a magic trick you can, even if you see the wires behind it you can still sort of appreciate sort of that's good drama yeah you should mention the map painting there like one of the first notes i have is Beautiful matte painting, and then matte painting of Rigel Seven looks gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like very high production values on the the old footage. But it does, it yeah, does especially... kind of all work. It it all sort of hangs right. together in a way that manages like to convince. Like in the second episode, there's the um, scene where Vina and Pike are 
very clearly on a soundstage with a horse for some reason. Yeah. And and even there, like like the 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 map painting isn't great. I mean, it's fairly obvious where the where the actual set ends and the painting begins, and they've put a bit of like space age building in the background. Um, but you know, it's kind of surprisingly easy to buy into. Um, and and you know the the fact that they've bothered to put the time into it, the fact that we have inventive designs across all of the map paintings um, also helps it. Like those those kind of like tall towers that look a bit like the like you know the tower in Seattle, uh, the the Space Needle, and all that kind of stuff. Like that's kind of, I think that's kind of impressive. There's something genuinely. Oh, yeah. Um, interesting about that, and 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 it's not just like a generic sort of um, clunky bit of uh, design or or you know kind of bog standard a few cards. Like they didn't need to go to all that effort, but they did, and it does yeah. help to establish like this sense of location, the sense of um, different environments that all these things exist in. Even the barren surface of Talos Four when they reveal like the destruction of it and that there's actually no nothing covering that lift and even that lift kinda looks good. The the way kinda jagged metal design around it. I thought. I think this is a great transition point to move from the menagerie to the cage within the menagerie. Which is that I totally understand why they reused this pilot because the production values are amazing. <laughs> like compared to the first <laughs> again, like the first ten episodes we've seen of this show, um, the cage looks it they just have more money, clearly. Yeah. It's very obvious that they've spent a lot of money on this pilot. And then well, you mentioned earlier, JD, they spent a lot of money on this pilot, it'd be ridiculous not to reuse it. And yeah, it's great that they found a good context for it. Cause like I said, all like the production design on the cage is gorgeous i think all the ideas are so ambitious there's so many like sets as they jump through the different sort of visions and illusions it's a really handsome looking episode and i'm really glad that they found a use for it instead of just sort of leaving it in a bin somewhere i mean of course you can now stream the cage on its own terms on paramount plus so even if this ep- even these two episodes didn't exist i'm sure they would find a way to get this out someday but it's nice that even viewers in the '60s could find a way to look at it. Okay, I suddenly just realized there. So you're talking about the kind of cage within the cage. That at some points we're watching the Telosians watching Pike, while the rest of the crew of the Enterprise is watching all of that. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of, I, I only after kind of copping that there. <laughs> it's it's cages all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think I think it's kind of interesting to sort of do a compare and contrast, and particularly between um, Jeffrey Hunter and, and William Shatner, because Hunter is really intense. He is going for it in 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 the cage. You know, he is not messing about, He's and so a lot angry. of that. In- Oh, so angry. Um, and 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 not just when he needs to be. He's 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 really doing his best to project that kind of very in-command, kind of alpha male, um, very kind of heteromasculine sort of uh, captain. And he is really good at it. He's very effective at being able to do that. But it's very interesting to see him contrasted with Shatner in this episode, because particularly in this one, Shatner, as we said, he's very subdued. He's very underplaying. He's not doing kind of like the big kind of leading man performance or the kind of outsized theatrical performance that 
he sometimes gives. Um, I think Jeffrey Hunter is really good. I really admire his performance in this. But I, at the same time, I also understand why he's not quite... He's just not quite right. And thats I don't mean that as a slight against Jeffrey Hunter. I think he is very, very good. But uh, and, and his intensity is one of the things that helps to focus like the clip show sections in. It, it helps carry you along. But also seeing him contrasted with Shatner in the same episode, you can kind of see why Shatner is better. Yeah, you can definitely see that. I think they made the right call there. I think, and then you also draw this sort of comparison. I mean, this, the inevitable comparison in my mind, at least, to, to Anson Mount. And I think Mount gets those same sort of quiet, intensity, familial qualities of Hunter and just does it better, unfortunately. Hunter is very good in these episodes, but I think like his 2020s equivalent just has more of a leading man present. I think that's what's lacking, presence on screen. It's yeah. what Shatner has it, Mount has it, and Hunter, unfortunately, doesn't. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's probably the one thing just missing from Jeffrey Hunter is that kind of extra dose of charisma that, like you said, Kev, that Anton Mount has in spades. Shatner obviously has in spades as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, sorry, excuse me. And Jeffrey Hunter, like, obviously it could have changed over the series if they kept him, but would you want to see that intense, angry captain for 33 weeks in the year? when you could have Shatner with more playful performance. And he does get that one scene um, where uh, he's in his cabin and he's sort of, uh, you know, a little bit sort of more melancholy and, and uh, Dr. Boyce um, played by John Hoyt is, is kind of doing his, in honestly, basically just a, a McCoy routine. And, you know, he turns up with his, his Gladstone bag and it's, it's uh, you know, it's got a martini in it rather than anything else and all that kind of stuff. Um, and and this, that scene where, where you know, uh, Pike says that he's sick of it all and he doesn't want the responsibility anymore. So there is some effort to shade the character. But even so, again, bless him, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to be hard on Jeffrey Hunter, but we, we have seen those kind of scenes between... McCoy and Kirk and they're just a bit better um, and, and you know again bless him I think uh, John Hoyt does a good job as, as Dr. Boyce but he's not DeForest Kelly because DeForest Kelly is an absolute god and he just he's just not as good and that's not that's not an insult it's just that somebody else is just better than he is and and all that kind of all that all that shading to, to Pike is yeah I mean uh, the the you know, Anson Mount is, is just sort of charisma central and, and yeah, bless him, Jeffrey Hunter just, just isn't quite in the same league. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just, uh, that was actually one of my main thoughts watching the kind of clip show parts that I wouldn't have minded if John White was kept on. Obviously, I'm glad DeForest Kelly is there, but John White does a good enough performance as boys that, like, it might have been, it wouldn't have been that much of a, a difference to me anyway. I think the ones, the characters who I'm missing the most are number one, and uh, I'm just looking at the cast I was comparing. Is it Colt who also is up in the prison? Uh, Lauren Goodwin? Yeah. yeah. Those are, like, talking about all the uh, distressing situations that a human Rand was put in. I think if we had those two characters, I mean, no, just, if Grace Lee Whitney was given the writing as those two characters, or we had those two characters from the jump, 
her way. I think that's what's keenly missing is the woman in this episode. Mm-hmm. I think Roddenberry does like, I mean, Vina is a whole box that they can open a little later. But the yeah. other two women in this episode, I find very <laughs> interesting and dynamic characters that, um, but yeah, I I feel like we're keenly missing them from the original Enterprise. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a shame. And I don't know, it's, I mean, we're going to have to talk about the, the whole, um, approach to gender so we yeah. might as well we let's just rip open let's just rip open the box let's tear off that band-aid and get, and get stuck into it because it is um let it's, it's it's weird in a way i one of the things i massively admire about the framing device is how unpatronizing it is to cut to uh pike like Pike is just treated as a character. The fact that he is being physically scarred, the fact that he's in a wheelchair, the fact that he can only communicate with one light, in no way um, lets him be treated as anything other than a full and complete character. When we have the uh, court martial, Kirk treats him with um, equality and respect. He's a very um, well put together character, and it's uh, it's almost unique. In, in particularly in the sort of mid sixties, to have a character who has those kind of disabilities, to be treated in that way, so often in sixties, particularly um, characters who have some kind of physical disability are usually kind of monstrous. So you have the scarred Blofeld in the James Bond films, or or something like that. It's it's usually a sign of somebody being a bad guy, basically. Whereas here, Pike is treated with complete and unbelievably progressive for 1966 kind of equality and it's brilliant i love the fact that pike is treated in that way but then we get to uh the 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 gendered approach and how vina can only really have value if she looks beautiful because the fact that she's scarred and been put put together but not terribly well by the Talosians is is somehow meant to be a demerit or it's meant to be something which is wrong or bad. It's a, it's a really strange tension that it sets up. Whereas the man is 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 disfigured, but but treated with respect and equality. The woman is disfigured, but you know she has to look beautiful. You'll give her her your beauty back, says Pike at one point. And, oh yeah, yeah, we'll make her look beautiful again. Go the Talosians, and it's it's a really weird disparity. Yeah, and. The whole character of Vina is fascinating. It's just, she has so <laughs> many like contradictions. Like she, I mean, she's being written by men. So I guess you can't really say she has her own agency when she like does things like trying, like that means so much to her to be beautiful. And she needs this sort of connection with Pike. It's, it, you can almost give her that agency of like well at least she's sort of acting on her own behalf but just you throw into the fact that written by gene roddenberry shows at the end of both episodes and it's just like well <laughs> then you sort of get into sort of meta aspects of men writing from women tv all of that it's just yeah it's she's not she's an interesting character because she has these wants and desires and she's acting on them she's not a total passive uh captive she is a active uh Stockholm Syndrome cap- uh, captive and jailer at the same time, which I find very interesting, but there's there's so much problematic with it. It's, it's, it's so messed up at the same time. Yeah, um, it's kind of just like any time she is spoken about when she's not there, it's like, 
oh, yes, now that he has the urge to protect her, it'll be all right, he'll stay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rather than, like, the when the plan is fully revealed, it's like, he, like, it, sorry, when, during the episode, it seemed like he bought here for her, or sorry, she was bought there for him, um, but, like, the end of it kind of just makes it seem like that, that, no, it's actually she's only important because he's there. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very strange play, and uh, the whole oh god, the whole space Arabia scene with the Orion yeah. slave girl. Um, yeah, um, I, there's so much wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I realize it's not fair to judge a show that was made in 1966 by contemporaneous standards. That's fine. I'm not going to pass judgment on it. For those reasons, but 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 uh, Space Arabia is still awful. Um, even by even by mid sixties standards, that's that's pretty reductive. And you know they've got her doing what is essentially a belly dance, even if she is painted yeah. green. Uh, the way that the sets are constructed, it's you know uh, it, it it's very kind of Middle Eastern. The soundtrack really leans into it as well with this kind of uh, very sort of sort of arab flourishes and, and instrumentations it's so difficult to watch these days and i know I, like i said it's it, it's not it's not just that it's being judged from like a 21st century perspective like that's pretty reductive even by mid 60s standards and and nobody seems to have a problem with and I, you know, use these words very advisedly. Orion slave girls, like, firstly, they're alien in in both senses: alien as in foreign, and alien as in from another planet. Slave, nobody seems to raise a question over that. And girl, she's not a girl. She's very clearly a well-developed woman. Everything is wrong about it's, that. It's, and that whole line delivered with that sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's like that one line. Yeah. We have two different Star Trek shows on the air, Discovery and Lower Decks, that have just been unpacking that one line for years now, trying to like make sense of it for their characters that are Ryan's on their shows. It's just yeah. yeah, the ripple effects. Yeah, I was just I, that was actually one of my thoughts while like watching the episodes like on Lower Decks Tendy's probably going around people no, this we're not all like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, that's just, it just speaks to othering. Like, even if you translate it to, oh, it's an alien planet and it's an alien woman and, well, it's not really uh, a problem because it's not about humans particularly. It's just the sense of, like, it's foreign, therefore (laughs) it's both A, exotic, and B, they have less freedom, you have more power. It's just, there's a lot going on there that is just... I mean, speaks to a lot of 1960s thinking. I think we should just leave it at that. Unless yeah. you have more thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's probably fair enough. Um, and yeah, you know, sort of in contrast to that, or or sort of in in balance to that, you know, the whole thing about number one and the character of number one was meant to be the idea that you know we can't have strong women in a position of authority um you know she is pike's second in command uh she is somebody who um clearly has some technical knowledge she takes charge of the situation when she sets her 
her phaser to overload during the second episode. She is she is a character um, who has real agency and real kind of ability to affect what is happening within the narrative. So that kind of, you know, it, it, it is that weird contradiction for all that we can have this kind of very passive sort of um, sort of almost stereotype of Vina. Uh, we can also have like a, a very strong, very defined female character like Number One, who is capable of having, you know, real agency within the story. And uh, of course, that's the character the network executives have the biggest problem with, and oh, she has to go immediately. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think it is. I just well, well, I, I, I would like to caveat that comment slightly, which is that you're correct. Um, but the, there is a whole thing, um, apparently, with uh, NBC, um, whereby I can't remember which producer on Star Trek it was that said this, so forgive my um, failure to either take notes and or do proper research. You must be used to it by now. Um, but, um, but somebody said the, the, the problem with number one wasn't that they didn't want to have a strong female. It was that they just didn't think Majel Barrett was that good. They didn't want her rather than they didn't want a strong female. They were quite happy to have a strong female within the cast. And that also sheds a slightly different light on it as yeah, well. Actually, mm-hmm. if, yeah, actually. If it can't be my wife, there's no more strong woman allowed on the show. It's apparently what Roddenberry is saying. <laughs> um, Ultimate wife guy, huh? Yeah. But yeah, I, I, it, that's also odd to me. I mean... Everyone's different opinions. I think Magical Barrett's pretty good in this episode. I I like her, like underplaying everything yeah. and yeah. projecting it's... this robot. I mean, I think again, Rebecca Romaine ups her, but I think that she's just a more experienced actor at this point in 2022 as opposed to Magical Barrett in 1966. It's definitely a contrast to Loxana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair comment indeed. We'll we'll, we'll get to that. We'll we'll get to Loxana in. Uh... Oh, I don't know, about 2027 or something, Kev. I'm aware of the character's existence. I, I know the brief sketch, and I'm looking forward to it. That's that's enough. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Nobody's looking forward to it. <laughs> I don't know, I've seen online, like, she's kind of being reclaimed by some people. Really? Yeah. Okay, well... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Topic for 2027. Uh, <laughs> yeah 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 we'll, we'll we'll put a pin in this for the next three years and we'll, we'll return to it sometime when we, when we if and when we dive into the next generation but i do agree i think she is an effective presence here um and the idea that you know I, again it, it's not leaned into heavily on in in, in the menagerie uh, but the idea that she's like she's the emotionless one she's a bit cold um but it, i think i don't know i i think she's pretty effective and it's nice to have a contrast um, against Jeffrey Hunter's kind of very kind of macho delivery, particularly that that scene when they're in the surface of Talos Four, and he's he's sort of threatening and blah blah blah, and and she just very calmly sets her phaser to overload and goes, "Yep, here's your solution. What do you want?" And it's just and she plays it very nicely. Yeah, that's we going back to the phasers. I was surprised at like the difference in between like the phasers that had in the 90s shows and phasers that have now versus that pilot i can't i haven't watched much of the episodes of the original series since so i don't know if they still have that type of phaser in it but the one she overloads like much more like a gun rather than a suppose sci-fi toy (laughs) oh yeah absolutely there's definitely a difference in props there yeah uh 
I think that's that, that's a ray gun. They've got ray guns. Yeah. That's the expression yeah, for that. Go. Whereas um, the, the the slightly the the, the the sort of classic um, Star Trek phaser um, is is a it still basically looks like a, a, a revolver or a six shooter, um, but it's it's a little bit more um, sophisticated than that. That that looks like it belongs to a Forbidden Planet or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also speaking of her. I guess not exactly a bluff, but just a threat. Uh, I also really liked Pike's uh, way to get out of it as well. Like shooting the wall and seemingly having no effect and then hold, holding it to the guy's head. It's like, well, if this has no effect, then clearly I can just pull the trigger next to your head, right? And then the, the illusion going down. I thought that was just such a good moment. I was really smartly written. Yeah, there's a lot of little moments like that in this that 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 really make the script resonate. And, and uh, you know, it, it it's one of the ways that... Um, it's the kind of writing I really appreciate because it shows the intelligence of the character working something out rather than just being presented with a solution. And I think that's one of the reasons that both the menagerie and the cage work really well. They are based in characters figuring something out rather than being based in a technological solution or, you know, a deus ex machina or, or whatever. You know, Pike really figures out how to defeat the Telosians, puts it into action, and then is able to get a resolution. That moment where he suddenly realizes that just for just for a minute, the Telosians couldn't read his mind, and he then bases his entire strategy to defeat them around that. That's really good writing. That's phenomenal. Um, and you know, Gene Roddenberry, let's be honest, isn't the greatest writer in the world but in that moment he really nails something down i think that's such a terrific moment and it shows it shows how smart pike is that he's able to take that work with it and 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 understand what he's looking at so he's not even although the Tolosians are constantly sort of repeating this idea oh you're primitive or you're you're less advanced than us and blah 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 but he isn't he's smart enough to see through both their kind of self-induced propaganda yeah. and you know see beyond his own kind of emotional range it's a really sharp piece of writing yeah i think another interesting piece of writing is actually the way the Tolosians are written uh just the fact that it wasn't a war or it wasn't any sort of natural disaster that forced them down underground it was the fact that they basically could make any illusion they wanted so that kind of, that became i think in the words of pipe came in narcotic to them screwed i guess now and they have to rebuild their rebuild their whole like race scratch because of this power which i thought was interesting which it seemed like it'd be a, the power itself seemed like it'd be a good thing but it's addictive and cause it downfall to society apparently I also just feel like the design of the Telosians, the big heads. I mean, I feel like it's cliche in sci-fi now. I don't mm -hmm. know what it was at the time, but it is just a striking design. And there's just, sometimes they verbally speak, but sometimes they just, they quote unquote talk by just uh, beaming thoughts to each mm -hmm. other and the actor mm -hmm. doesn't speak and you just hear the voiceover. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's stuff that is cliche now, but stuff that I still think works in probably worked better in 1966 but still works now it's fun it's effective yes they're they're thought transmissions um but yeah it it, it does work and the, even the even the sort of throbbing like blood vessels or whatever in their head 
It's it's not necessarily, but I think the makeup is really good. Oh yeah, I think I think all of that design is is incredibly well put together, and it feels um, it feels like it's creating a world. It's a very small point, but the doors in um, both the elevators that go up to the planet and the ones which are just outside uh, the cage are noticeably narrower than the ones, say, for example, on the Enterprise, because it seems, uh, it looks like somebody has realized that the actors who are playing the Tolosians are smaller and more slender than um, than the crew of the Enterprise. So the sets have been designed to look smaller and more slender. And again, that helps to give such a good impression of place and a different society because there's a, a connection between the design of the sets and the people who actually inhabit them. It's a small thing, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. I will say one place I think the the series improved on the original pilot was Spock's makeup. I maybe it's because I'm used to Spock in the original series, but it just looks off. I don't know if that's like I said, being used to it or No, no, I think I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I yeah, it does just look a little off. Um, and I like I think Nimoy has just settled into the role better, both visually and we were talking before performance wise by this point mm-hmm. of the show with the framing device. Yeah, he definitely has, and and those those bushy eyebrows are not flattering. Absolutely anymore, not. Let's no. be honest. <laughs> and, uh, um, but that 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 the cleaner kind of clipped look that that Spock has now also suits that version of the character better mm-hmm. it's more emotional uh, sorry more, more emotionless it's a little bit more controlled and it, it kind of speaks to the character whereas of course in the original pilot he wasn't emotional at all it wasn't emotionless at all i'm not doing a very good job of this you know what i'm trying to say uh that that slightly rougher look uh suited the character in the cage better and the the cleaner look suits him better now yeah i think the kind of wilder look as well the wilder eyebrows suit him better when he was well, one big laugh for me was when Neem, when they just transported two women down to the planet and Nimoy, just like an awkward pause for the effect shot, and then Nimoy just shouts, <laughs> they're women! So if, if Ethan Peck doesn't do that at some point in Strange New Worlds, I'd be very disappointed. Yeah, so just so one very uh, minor Strange New World notes as well. Um, there is a point during the first episode where I think it's Mendez says of, of Pike, oh yes, He's about the same age as you, Kirk. Now, I love Anson Mount. Don't get me wrong. He is a a, a great actor, very handsome gentleman. Uh, but he is not by any stretch of the imagination the same age as William Shatner is in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I I was thinking about the time periods as well. What Spock had a line about being 11 years since Pike was on the Enterprise. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, mm. I think there's like... Strange Worlds is just going to have to reconcile some things, I feel like. And also, Kirk never meeting Pike uh, until he was a fleet captain. I don't think they're mm-hmm. going to stick to that. I, You can't hold Kirk off the show for that long. So, yeah, I will see what they do. But there's definitely a lot of very specific information in this episode that that show will tiptoe around. You know, I don't mind if if oh, uh, no, me neither. Strange New Worlds makes a few decisions which which don't necessarily perfectly mesh up with this, like like casting Anson Mount. He's clearly much much older than um than Jeffrey Hunter would have been, but you know, like he's really good in the role. 
so I'm fine with it. Yeah, exactly. How did you guys feel like the? Do you think the twist that like Mendez wasn't there at all landed for you? It kind of didn't for me. It mm. just in the way that it. Well, it didn't ruin uh, what went before, but it kind of lessened the whole performance of Shatner being. Sorry, about Kirk being betrayed by Spock, because like he does make a good point, uh, Kirk. That when that happens, he says, "You know, you could have just came and told me." And like from part one, it seems like that is right, and Kirk probably would have gone to Talos for anyway. Yeah, I definitely think that there's something missing. Like that's the biggest stretch of the episode that, um, yeah, I just can't quite square it. I just don't understand how the Telosians did it. I mean, I usually have a very flexible, like, suspension of disbelief, but even that, it's like, so from that far away, they affected the shuttlecraft, and he was there the whole time. It makes Mendez's motivations about the entire two episodes sort of suspect. I get the whole idea was to stall Kirk, but I don't know if Mendez's actions quite line up with that. It, it really threw me, and I, it's hard to square it, I feel like, in a way. Is it, it doesn't feel satisfying like a good twist should. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I, it, it's not something that I think really works. I understand what the script is going for. Um, but that, oh, so you'll be distracted and won't try and fix your ship. As if Kirk is the only one that could fix the ship. Like the other 300 crew members couldn't be working on that whilst the court-martial was going on. Mm. Yeah, not, not completely convinced by that. But... Uh, you know, I like. I, I I get what they're going for. They're trying to emphasize the you know the immense power of the Talosians and all the rest of it. Yeah, but yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't quite come together. Mm-hmm. No, because yeah, I did think of that as well. That that means like their power is so great they can go however many light years from there to Serapis Eleven, create this illusion of Mendez on the shuttle, and then have. The transport over, etc., etc., uh, and just kind of eh, then we'd be a bit too powerful there if that's the case. Well, the thing is, if they're capable of doing that, if they're capable of reaching out across, you know, solar systems and however far it is from Talos mm. Four to Starbase mm. Eleven or whatever, like why are they, it can't be that difficult for them to get people to come to their planet. So it does slightly undermine the whole ah, but we need you for things and yeah. also reasons um yeah they can just like do it anyway yeah. so yeah i don't know it, it, yeah it doesn't it doesn't really work and like you say it's not a kind of story runer or anything it's just one of the things that yeah can't mind yeah i think it's it's the one major flaw i have with the strip at the framing device rather um it's just a weird sour note to sort of leave on though i think the the actual note we leave on uh, for in that sort of wrap-up mode talking about the last scene, uh, I think it's weirdly, it's not sweet, it's bittersweet. It's like mm-hmm. he'll get this little bit of comfort in his uh, the rest of his life, but, I mean, what is the quote here? I can pull it up. Uh, Captain Pike has an illusion and you have reality, mm-hmm. as the Talosian says to Kirk. So... Mm-hmm he'll have it, but it's not quite there, but it's better than the situation he has now. Mm. And it's just a tragedy there that is very, 
again, understated, but very effective. Yeah. And can I ask? Uh, yeah. I... Oh, oh, sorry, JJ, go ahead. No, go, go, please. I oh, know it's going to, going back to Strange New Worlds again, I was going to ask Kev, does it kind of make his, does it change his view on Strange New Worlds at all? Like on Pike or on Spock or anything like that? I mean, I think Strange World Season 1, it makes me like that for that whole ongoing story of him changing his fate a little better, even if it's relying on dodgy discovery, um, you know, plot, plotting and all of that. I think if Pike had had a fully, like, say the Telogians magically reverse him and he's back to normal, it would make a lot of the drama in Strange New Worlds less effective. I think that this tragedy is coming for him. And even if he has this comfort at the end, it's still not a full reversal. It's really uh, makes it even more effective, I think, knowing that this is he's stuck like this. This is his fate. And as uh, I mean, I I want to treat the disabled pipe like as a human, of course, as the characters do. It's not he can still live a life, but at the same time, it's it's still a tragic thing that happened to him. And it's this is the fate with Telosians is better than what he had. I know it's not something that we've particularly touched on, um, but I do, I do want to give props uh, to Sean Kenny as Christopher Pike in the wheelchair. I think he does do a really good job, considering he has literally no lines yeah. and just has to basically sit there rolling his eyes. I, I think he's very, very good. And he does a great job of being able to sort of project that, that sense of... Uh, vulnerability and also the fact that you know within you know his his disfigured or disabled body um pike is still in there he's still fine and it, it it's it's only his his outward physical um appearance which is has been uh you know damaged that the, the mind is still in there given how limited his actual role is and given uh you know even you know the fact that he's he's in this kind of space age wheelchair I think he does an amazing job of of being able to communicate the character and and really incredibly worthy of praise. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it's just a very effective physical performance. I mean, yeah. the way he moves his eyes around is like magnetic. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like we're about to wrap up here. Uh, I think final thoughts that I have. I liked this. It's very good. Uh, JG, what do you think? I like this. It's very good. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I know I alluded to it before, but just, just to make it quite explicit, I, I, uh, I was really amazed by how good this was, given what a vast quantity of time has passed since the last time I'd seen it. I did not expect this to be as good as it is. I think it's a, I think it's a compelling piece of drama. I think it does an amazing job of being able to reframe the original in a way that works dramatically and works you know as a story it's not just a cheapy clip show and and it manages to mine both real pathos from uh pike's condition and 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 give us real insight into spock and that's that's not bad for a cheapy budget saving episode yeah i think this is great yeah i also like it i also think it's a very good episode um it can, does contain what is now one of my favorites uh Star Trek lines just when one of the times Mendez is angry in the court martial, he just shouts, This is a space court, not a theater. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, just right the inclusion yeah. of the word space there, just like <laughs> it's not brilliant. 
just in case you were worried it was any other kind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, just going with what both you, Kevin, JG said, it's very like dramatically satisfying. There's nothing really more you can say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, not more I can say with words, but how about with numbers? Yeah. Uh, let's go to episode <laughs> ratings. Are we just wrap it up with a score out of 10? I am going with eight. I think it's, yeah, very good. Uh, eight is exactly what I'm going to go for as well. I I I just I just didn't expect it to be uh I just didn't expect it to be this good. Uh yeah, eight across the board. Like we we're saying the only real big flaw was the kind of last twist of Mendez, but other than that I thought it was really good. And some things of the time as well, but uh, yeah. we don't need to rehash that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, and now I think we move to recommendations. Uh, Paul, why don't you start with uh, something non-Trek, or it can still be Trek-related, whatever you choose to recommend to our <laughs> listeners. Uh, yeah, uh, not Trek-related, uh, but uh, Bad Sisters on Apple TV. Uh, it's mm. a new show uh, co-written by Sharon Horgan. I can't remember who the, the other co-writer is, sorry. <laughs> um, and it's, a, it's an Irish it's set in Ireland, and it's about these four sisters who hate their brother-in-law, who's played by uh, Clay's Bang. I think he's Fjallnir. Is that how you pronounce that? From the Northman? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he plays literally the worst man I've ever seen on television, but in a believable way. He just has all kind of... It's like he's gaslighting, and he's rude to everyone, and you kind of have to see him to believe him. But anyway... It's those four sisters. Uh, it's not really a spoiler because it's real in the first like 10 minutes. They killed him. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, the insurance uh, company insurance company guys are trying to... Sorry, excuse me. I'm trying try a second. The insurance company guys are trying to make sure that they don't get the payout. Oh, and one of the insurance company guys is paid, played by Brian Gleason, uh, Donald's brother, Brendan's son. And yes, yeah. I love any Gleason whenever one shows up on my TV or theater mm-hmm. screen. It's yeah. So, and Sharon Horgan, of yeah. course. Uh, yeah, it sounds yeah. fantastic. Oh yeah, she's in. She's in it as well. Sorry, I meant to say that. <laughs> she plays one of the sisters, and the other sisters are played by Irish actors. I don't think you know them, except maybe Anne Marie Duff, who was in Magdalene Sisters. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so yeah, I'd really recommend it, especially if you already have it for for all mankind or Ted Lasso or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, like Apple, one underrated. I mean, we've talked about Apple shows a lot on this podcast. I think you know, JG recommended quite a, 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 a worryingly large amount at this stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I am going to recommend. Well, some listeners may know this started as a podcast about Doctor Who audios, and I'm going to recommend Doctor Who audio. But not from the third party Big Finish that usually does a lot of those, but straight from BBC themselves. BBC Radio put out a podcast called Doctor Who Redacted, and I think it's really excellent. It's about these three women who host a podcast about called the Blue Box Files, about trying to unravel mysteries about the TARDIS, not knowing it's called that. But there's a lot of fun callbacks to like uh, older episodes from New Who and... Uh, trying to figure out like who this is, what is the explanation behind these events, sort of like with a conspiracy theory angle. And they quickly get drawn into a real Doctor Who story uh, where people are vanishing. And then after they vanish, people forget 
who they were. It's a very effective story. I think all three leads are excellent. I think they're well-characterized, well-performed. I think the direction, sound design, all that is very good. It's just, yeah, it's really good Doctor Who audio. And even though you don't get much Jodie Whittaker in it, she's only really present at, in the end. Minor spoiler alert. But um, you do get some other fun cameos that I won't spoil from other like people who are on the show. And those are all very fun. Uh, yeah, it's got some, it's just a really well-written top-to-bottom show. And I really think you should check it out. It's like 10 and half-hour episodes. And it's now available on any podcast feed anywhere. Uh, Apple, Spotify, you name it. Yeah, I've listened to that as well and concur with you. It's, it's really well done. And the lead actress, especially, I think, is really, really good performance from her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I must sadly report that I'm behind the times and have not listened to it yet, but there may well be an update in a future episode when I've had the chance to get into it. Uh, fantastic thank you very much um i'm going to recommend a show called uh, am i being unreasonable uh which stars daisy may cooper uh it's a six-part series on uh, uh i was gonna say the bbc i don't and yeah it is the bbc it's a six-part series on the bbc um and it's i'm not i don't really want to give it a genre description because it, it, it kind of straddles a whole bunch of genres it's definitely uh it's definitely a comedy show uh, it's also dramatic. Uh, it's also a uh, tragedy. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff in it about unreliable narration. Uh, it's an amazing piece of television that I was incredibly surprised to discover. I really love Daisy May Cooper. She's great. Um, I guess uh, maybe American listeners know her. She was in an episode, uh, so she was in a series uh, of Taskmaster. Um, I don't know what else she would have done in America that you might be familiar with. Um, but it, it's just such a great show. It's it's so well written. It's incredibly uh, sharply observed. Uh, Jessica Hines is in it. Can't go wrong with a bit of Jessica Hines, of course. Um, and it's just this really interesting, inventive uh, little show. It's deeply funny in places. It's absolutely heartbreaking in others. Um, and I'm probably not doing a tremendously good job of selling it because it's it's quite a difficult show to describe. Uh, it's, sometimes it's deeply uncanny. There are parts of it which are almost sort of, it's kind of directed almost like Inside Number Nine, if you're familiar with that show. Um, kind of very uncanny and very kind of, uh, you know, sort of slipping uh, a little bit between realities and perception. It's just a really intelligent piece of television very very funny in places and um yeah Daisy May Cooper is playing a mum uh she has suffered a trauma in her past uh I don't really want to go into too much detail because it kind of it's kind of almost impossible not to start giving spoilers and it's a, a better show I think to be appreciated just as you watch it uh but yeah so that's my recommendation this week am I being unreasonable it's really great give it a chance I, Daisy May Cooper, I was just sound very familiar, and she is involved in a lot of shows I've been meaning to watch: Avenue Five, uh, This Country. So yeah, I should. Uh, oh, I, I did. She was in Personal History of David Copperfield, which I have seen, but I don't remember her in it. But yes, I do want to. Um, I should check that out. That sounds fantastic. Good. Well, I think we can uh, probably start to um, draw things to uh, close for now. Um, Paul, is there anything you would like to plug? 
Uh, no, no, just I'm on Twitter at when do we live, all one word. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for, for joining us on our, our trip to the menagerie. Well, thanks for having me. Our absolute pleasure. So for Talking Trek to You, you can find us on Twitter at Talk Trek to You. I am on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And I also uh, guest on the podcast Total Massacre fairly frequently, uh, the podcast about action movies. JG's writings are at www.jgmcquarry.scott. Uh, Scott, And his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, going through the Beatles track by track. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcast you use to help other people find it. Thank you very much. And I think we can probably wrap things up there for now. Next week, we will be dealing with the conscience of the king. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Thank you.